Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, filmmaker Tom Shepard talks about his new documentary, Unsettled, which chronicles the stories of LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers in San Francisco. That's coming up today on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKee. There are still 70 countries in the world where it is illegal to be gay. And in several of those places, the punishment is death. The majority of these countries exist either in Africa or the Middle East, places like Syria and Angola and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Because of this, many LGBTQ people from those countries seek refuge elsewhere in the world. Many go to the US, many go to the UK, many go to mainland Europe, and increasingly more are coming to Canada. But in regards to the US, there is one city that's always been at the center of gay freedom. San Francisco. It's a city that, at least for me, holds quite a bit of lore uh, and history and prestige and mystery and has always been uh, at the top of my list for places to visit and go see, not the least of which is the Golden Gate Bridge. There are perhaps few other cities in the U.S. that have as many stories behind them as San Francisco, perhaps only New York and Chicago and maybe New Orleans have more. But if you are of a certain age and are LGBTQ, then San Francisco holds an even deeper, more important meaning. There's the Castro, there's Hate Ashbury. San Francisco, in many ways, was the birth, or at least a hub, of gay culture in the 50s, 60s, 
and 70s. So it should be no surprise that LGBTQ immigrants to the U.S. often go to San Francisco because of that storied history. And that's the case with a new documentary. It's called Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America. And it follows four LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers from uh, Syria, from Congo, and from uh, a lesbian couple from Angola. They each have their own highs and lows. Three of them are black, one of them is white, one of them is gender fluid. And it's a really interesting look at not only what it means to be an immigrant in the 21st century America, but a refugee and asylum seekers. And I do get into specifically what those terms mean. Um, and also why these refugees choose to go to America. The director of the film is Tom Shepard, who has worked for many years as a producer, director, editor, and cinematographer. His previous documentaries include Scout's Honor, Knocking, Whiz Kids, and As She Is. Tom also makes his home in San Francisco, so it was a project that was definitely close to his heart. I spoke with Tom a couple of days ago about the long process that documentary filmmakers can take, uh, being both LGBTQ, a person of color, and a refugee uh, in the era of Trump, and where we go from here, and, and how perhaps the the gay rights movement uh, coincides with a lot of the new civil rights activism that we're seeing um, these days. So without further ado, this is my conversation with director Tom Shepard. How uh, how's how's quarantine treating? How are you holding up? You all right? Yeah, I just I had been in the Bay Area of California and drove out to Colorado a couple of weeks ago because I teach a program, much of which we're doing online. But it was it actually was really lovely to get in a car and like be in motion and see landscapes and you know kind yeah. of have at least a sense of being able to travel a little bit. But how about you? Good. I'm uh, I'm on Vancouver Island, so I'm in I'm in Victoria. 
uh, in on the west coast of Canada here. Um, yeah. You know, so sort of sort of same same ballpark geographical region, I guess, as you. You know, Pacific Northwest. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, I I was based out of Toronto for two years, and then uh, when this all hit basically moved back in with my parents as 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 one does right um but no the i'm definitely appreciating nature i think a lot more than i used to yeah no it's true i like i'm going on these two-hour walks which i never did before but i have so much unstructured time right now that it's it's like healthy and gotten addicted to a couple (laughs) netflix shows for sure so yeah, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I go, I take to go riding in the park or something like that. You know, there's several parks near where I live. I can walk there, you know, do some writing, do some reading, come home, watch, you know, HBO or Netflix or something. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really complaining that much, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just give me two, two seconds. I'll be right back. Okay. Yeah, no, no problem. Window, I can hear a lawnmower that's happening. <laughs> So yeah, um, you have a new documentary out, uh, Unsettled, which looks at three stories specifically, I guess, of, of LGBTQ refugee and asylum seekers um, in, in the Bay Area. What was it about these three stories specifically, about Junior, Cheyenne and Marie, and, and Subi? Right. Well, we started this project in 2014, and I can tell you, for good reason, most refugees and asylum seekers are not interested, you know, in the moments after they get here and having a camera sort of shoved in their faces. So a lot of, you know, who we worked with was really, you know, kind of predicated on who who was willing to kind of expose that stuff. And I think also we were interested in, in both telling a refugee story and an asylum-seeking story, because those are very different kind of lived experiences. Um, but no, these these folks are I'm pretty amazing because, you know, as I said, like the backstories are kind of traumatic enough, but then right in the moment of transition when they're very displaced and they're just trying to get their kind of initial toeholds in the culture, then there we are asking them to you know, kind of regurgitate some of their very, very painful pasts. So, um, so we just feel lucky that we found those people at that time. Well, you, you know, on that note, you, you mentioned the difference between asylum seeking and refugee. I'm wondering if you can expand on that because it, it feels like when people hear the term refugee, they have a very specific connotation or when they hear asylum seeker, they have a very specific connotation that it, that is not understood. What are What classifies a refugee? What classifies an asylum seeker? Yeah, you bet. So refugees, as related to the U.S., refugees get their kind of refugee status or asylum outside of, of the United States. And so they'll flee uh, their, their country of origin and um, go to what we might refer to as a country of transit. So in, in Subi's case, a, a gay Syrian man fled Syria, went to Lebanon initially, couldn't afford to live there, so then moved to Turkey and in Turkey, he was able to register at the United Nations office. Um, it's the commissioner of high refugees. And you can basically apply for asylum, make a case of well-founded fear that you cannot go back to your home country. And so then the United Nations as an agency adjudicates that case. And if you're approved, then your uh, refugee resettlement papers start to be processed. And so you might be resettled in Canada or you might be resettled in the US, 
Europe. Most LGBTQ refugees are being resettled in Europe and in and the US and Canada a little bit as well. Asylum seekers, on the other hand, cross over the border into the US. They can come with a tourist visa, they can come with a student visa, and then once they're inside the US, they can make a claim of asylum. And the onus is on them to basically find an attorney, a pro bono attorney, to adjudicate their own cases through the American immigration courts. So we kind of, we follow two refugees who already kind of had their refugee status in their papers and then were resettling in the Bay Area. And then we, and then we followed a couple, a lesbian couple from Angola, Cheyenne and Marie, who were able to get here on a student visa and then over the course of three, three and a half years, quite a, quite a process, were able to adjudicate their, their, their asylum petition. You mentioned you, you started filming this in, in 2014, and I do know that for a lot of documentary filmmakers, one film is, is, is a five-year process. Um, I've talked to filmmakers who have done you know, a 10-year process, some are, some are two. What, how long was it for you from sort of conception and, and beginning filming to, to finally getting it out there? Well, um, you know, we're just premiering the film on public television on Sunday, and it will be just about six years uh, since I started researching it. I was researching the film in 2014. And, you know, Dan, at that point, you know, LGBT rights in the U.S., Canada, and many countries in the West were accelerating very quickly. In our country, we had marriage equality, which was sort of steamrolling its way to the Supreme Court, you know, soon to be law of the land. Um, however, if you looked at other places, and particularly in Africa and the Middle East, other countries as well, it seemed like situations were getting worse for people. You heard stories of gay men being thrown off buildings in countries. You would hear stories of lesbian corrective rape in some African countries. And so it almost felt inversely related. And as a gay man myself in San Francisco, I was sort of looking around and feeling some complacency in my community. Um, I started volunteering at a refugee resettlement organization, Jewish Family and Community Services, and they're the ones that, you know, allowed me to, to meet people like Subi and Junior and kind of get the film, film started. So it felt like a pretty right moment to kind of tell these stories of kind of queer dislocated people. What do you, what do you think it is about San Francisco, you know, because back in the 60s and 70s we heard all the stories about, you know, it was like sort of the first gay haven, at least on the West Coast. Why do you think so many people choose to go there and, and how would you describe the culture of San Francisco now versus 20, 30 years ago? Uh, this is such a great question. So people choose to go there, but also the Obama administration in 2014 gave Jewish Family and Community Service a, a very big first grant to resettle queer refugees. And it sort of makes sense. I mean, San Francisco has this sort of mythology of being a kind of queer sanctuary city. Um, it's, an, it's always been a very immigrant-friendly city. Um, I myself uh, grew up in a very conservative town in the middle of the country and fled to San Francisco in the 90s. And, you know, I was able to, like, find my tribe as a gay man and, and find my tribe as a documentary filmmaker. There's such a strong independent film community there. But most importantly, I was able to afford to live there at the time. And the changing character of San Francisco and other cities where a lot of LGBTQ refugees are landing has become cost prohibitive. I mean, it's like middle-class people, teachers can't afford to stay in San Francisco, they're leaving. So try you know, imagining living on a refugee benefit of $330 a month for eight months 
in San Francisco. Pretty tough stuff. Can we can we talk about terminology? Because just there, you you, you talked about both queer and gay. Um, you know, I I think the term gay is perhaps used by maybe the older generation, Gen X, maybe some older millennials, and queer has sort of been taken back by by the younger generation as as almost more of a political statement, I think, than than identity. Um, where where do you stand on on the terminology and and in, in terms of identity markers that are being used today? Yeah, I think you know when I was coming of age and coming out, um, I, I I definitely used the term gay, and I feel like the sort of politicizing of identity and then was very kind of binary. It was gay or straight, male, female, and I feel like the generations after me are doing a really good job of making those identities more fluid. And so you have now kind of the alphabet of, <laughs> of identities around sexual orientation and, and, and gender identity. And in many ways, I think queer is both political, but I also think it's expedient. It sort of encompasses a, a wider range of how people are identifying themselves. And I think that's great. Um, and, and I increasingly am using that word queer myself. And is it important just on the basis, you know, a lot of you know, because I used to work in the village in Toronto, and so there's a lot of concern, I think, among the, especially among the community, that there's even transphobia in, in the gay community. And so in, in your film, how important was it to, to profile somebody like Junior, who, you know, is a little bit more effeminate, is a little more non-binary, um, just, just the importance of including somebody like him for, for the greater conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, we were asking questions in the film about who is welcome. I mean, already you're sort of marked if you're a newcomer. Maybe it's because of your language skills. Maybe it's because of the color of your skin. Junior really embodied a lot of targets. I mean, he talks about how, you know, I'm gender nonconforming. I'm dark-skinned African. People have a lot of misconceptions about me. He also is a person with, living with HIV. So there, there were all these sort of forms of bias that I think his identities um, presented to people. And I think it was really important. I mean, the interesting thing though, Dan is, and I don't think we expected this, but in some ways, sexual orientation and gender identity took a back seat to folks who were just really trying to survive. I mean, Junior moved 10 times in as many months in the first year that he was in San Francisco. So imagine this, someone who's already carrying all this trauma and was very displaced across the continent of Africa from Kinshasa and Congo to Cape Town is arriving thinking, oh, I've made it to the Emerald City, I'm in San Francisco. And then he moves 10 times in 10 months. Um, that sort of trauma and kind of what Junior would call internal displacement was really strong and in some ways was even a bigger force than some of the other issues we're talking about. Well, you know, on that note, because you, you see him just moving around constantly, and then you see somebody like Shine and Marie who get their own apartment, and Subi who adapted really well and became this great activist. Why do you think Junior faced those types of hurdles that he did, in, especially in relation to the other two stories that you were following? I think there are a number of factors, but we can't erase that race is, is one of them. And... Um, you know, I think Cheyenne and Marie, who are also from Africa, they're from Angola, um, they also had a, go, a very hard go of it and, you know, didn't have solid housing in that first year as well. But, you know, they had each other. 
And it's unusual to kind of follow a story of a couple, an asylum-seeking couple. They were so deeply in love. That was palpable the moment that I met them. And I think um, Junior talks about feeling incredibly isolated, isolated in a community that values being white, that values in the queer community, you know, being successful and uh, financially successful in the Bay Area, that values tech now in the Silicon Valley. And to come and not sort of conform or comport to these sort of values in the modern day queer community in the Bay Area, I think was very, very difficult. And then some of it is just about, you know, sort of class and not having any resources. I mean, you know, he, he is a really bright student and went to law school, but to be able to translate initially the skills that he learned in Kinshasa to the Bay Area is very, very hard. And so being able to get those initial footholds um, was particularly difficult for him. It was difficult for all of them, but they all had different ways of kind of managing their circumstances. You know, you, you start off the film by saying, uh, I think 70 countries, it's still illegal to be gay. I remember, you know, even five years ago, I think it was 78, so it's good that it's gone down. Um, but if you look at the distribution, it's mainly Africa and the Middle East. And not to put the blame on anybody, but how much do you think religion plays a factor? Especially in countries like Africa, where a lot of the pastors were, were trained by American white Christian missionaries. Well, you're hitting it right on the head. And I'm not an expert on country conditions. Um, and there are some great folks. There's a great organization outright that we've partnered with who does and many others who can speak to this, you know, kind of academically. But that is definitely one big issue. And the irony, of course, is that that sort of Christian right fundamentalism, much of it was exported from the United States. Some of those um, organizers and pastors uh, you know, really found a stronghold in some of those countries. And, and that actually homophobia, Junior talks about this, like, you know, that wasn't innately something that was broadcast as evil or sinful before uh, the sort of Christian right got there. Uh, and then you look at somebody like Subi, who's, you know, from a place that's nobody knows what's going to happen to it. Why do you think he succeeded in the way he did was it because his his english was was quite good or he had sort of a i guess i just a natural knack for for communicating yeah although growing up you know in a in a country that would soon become incredibly war-torn subi um was well educated started learning english very young um his parents were quite affluent and were connected to the leadership in Syria in those years. So he had a lot of opportunities. Actually, all of the, the subjects of our film, though, are very highly educated. They were all in university. But I think there, there's a way in which Subi had navigated some of those systems at that level uh, even before he left the country. And once he got to Turkey, he was able to get a job at an NGO, Save the Children, and you know had a lot of experience that translated very quickly and very easily when he got to the US. And then thirdly, I think, you know, just you know, by, by strokes of luck, ended up with this extraordinary host, Fred Hertz, who is, you know, just a really, like, smart and kind of well-resourced person and also a very connected person. And it was through Fred, his host, that they connected to 
then Ambassador Samantha Power at the United Nations, at the US ambassador at that time. And so there were just all these sort of like being in the right place at the right time with the right community um, that enabled Subi to kind of step into those roles. But the irony, Dan, is that, you know, that ended up in some ways being quite a hardship. And in our film, it's not like we end the film with Subi oh. going to the United Nations, but what happens when you become a sort of poster boy or a, a refugee rights, um, you know, advocate, well, you know, the media wanted to talk to him every day, you know, other people who were stuck in countries of transit or in their home countries who were, who were LGBTQ at wondering like, hey, how did you do that? I need to do that. So when just part of him wanted to have a normal life, I mean, the whole reason why he came to the US was to sort of stabilize all this trauma that he'd experienced. So it was, I think if you asked him, um, it's, it was a mixed bag, but it certainly, elevated his stature and his ability to kind of move through the American system. I wanted to ask you about Samantha Power, because of course there was, there's a scene with her in the film. Was it easy to, to, to get her to, to appear on camera? And when you're sort of following these more, you know, political organizations like Homeland Security and whatever, were, were there certain things where you, where you weren't allowed in the room? I mean, I won't lie, it was, it was not the easiest access. We had to go through both the American mission, um, the office in which she led the American mission there, and also the UN press office. But honestly, um, I think she and her staff understood what we were doing. And in a prior life, she was a journalist. And I don't know if you have read her recent book. It's a memoir, The Education of an Idealist. But you can see how much storytelling plays a role in her ability to be an ambassador and to engage the world, you know, in terms of American public policy and stuff. So, um, in fact, it wasn't that hard. It was harder to get access to the San Francisco Giants ballpark in which we filmed Junior working at the hot dog stand. I, I've never in my 20 years of filmmaking had such difficult access and had to go back to those folks like 10 times. Um, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was easy to get into the UN, but um, once they kind of understood that we'd been following Subi for months and that we were sort of part of, you know, a longer longitudinal story, I think they got that right away. You know, you, you, you mentioned the Giants, and then there's another scene there where they're going to see the Statue of Liberty um, when they're in New York. And both, I think, both those things, baseball and the statue, symbolize the American dream, which is what all these cases are basically, you know, try, trying, to, trying to fight for. Um, what, was, what was the most interesting thing, or what did you learn most about people coming from other countries who, who have this idea about America. I mean, that scene that you're pointing out gives me goosebumps even today when I see it. But when I was there, I think in part because here was this young 26-year-old Syrian gay guy. We also that day had gone to um, the West Village to, um, oh, why is the name escaping me? Um, to the Stonewall Inn, exactly. You know, a place... 50 years ago that in, in some ways catalyzed an LGBT liberation movement. And to see Subi there and to see Subi looking at the Statue of Liberty, which has always been this kind of symbol of the US as a safe harbor, as a place where you can come and, you know, put your sort of um, persecuted past behind you. And so to see Subi almost understanding and living that queer history in the US and then almost taking the baton as the next generation of people globally 
um, it really, it, it, it moved me deeply. Um, and so I'm, I'm so glad that we, we got to film that. I mean, on that, on that Staten Island ferry where we were, you know, there was, there was a guy from Pakistan. There was a couple from, you know, um, different parts of Africa. I mean, you just felt this sort of potential of America as a very, you know, that we've heard that term melting pot. Of course, when Donald Trump got into office, like Donald Trump has lowered the, the number of allowable refugees into the country by 80%. It was 110,000 refugees under the last year of the Obama administration. In the first year, Trump cut it in half. In the next year, he cut it in half again. We're now at an all-time low. And so this question of whether America is going to continue to be that sort of safe harbor or refuge in the world is really at stake right now. And I just felt the, all of that kind of in those moments with Subi at the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan, so anytime I even get to you know, a, approach that. Um, I, I think it was, I forget who was it said it in the movie, but I think it might have been Fred that talks about this idea of the new America, you know? What do you what do you think that means now, especially in the last couple of years under the new administration? Well, all the rhetoric that Trump used to kind of energize his presidential campaign has actually translated very consistently into anti-immigrant and anti-refugee policies. So I just told you about the refugee policy. It's also increasingly difficult for people, asylum seekers in this country, to get their asylum and to get their asylum cases even heard. And you may be familiar with stories that are coming out in the US-Mexican border, uh, largely of Central American families uh, who are migrating all the way through Mexico and who used to be able to cross the border, connect with a customs office, and have their sort of day in court. Most of those cases now are being turned back. Trump has in the sort of you know, guise of safety around COVID and all of this stuff has really um, changed that policy and made it very, very difficult. So uh, the trends are not good, but when you look at, for instance, surveys of people under the age of 35 in this country, whether it's on queer issues or immigration issues or women issues, um, the younger generations in this country are much more progressive. So I don't think it's an accident that the Republican Party is um, clawing to hold on to power because they see themselves being obsolete um, in the future. And, um, you know, I guess I'm just glad that folks like Subi and, you know, Shine and Marie and Junior were able to sort of get in under the wire because I think it would be a completely different story if they were just starting their process right now. Uh, the film ends on a lovely uh, scene with Cheyenne and Marie getting married uh, at, at City Hall. Um, given how long you had spent with them watching their case, when you found out that they were going to get married, was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to film their wedding? Oh, when we understood that they were going to get married, of course, as, as a filmmaker and as a human being it's like well we are we are definitely going to be present for that um, we'll take your wedding pictures if need be but let us let us please film that event um it was so moving of course because uh you know when i was their age that that wasn't even in the realm and um and just to add a little bit of interesting sort of historical resonance is the woman who officiated their wedding, her name is Ann Cronenberg, and she was Harvey Milk's campaign manager when Harvey Milk ran and won for supervisor in San Francisco back in the late 1970s. If you've ever seen the 
the sort of seminal film, The Times of Harvey Milk, and is one of the main storytellers in that. And this was not something I knew was happening. Um, I think it's something that Melanie, who was helping Cheyenne and Marie, she knew and, and was able to kind of connect with her. But there's just a sort of symbolism that I can't quite describe of appreciating like our generation who just these things weren't in reach and now we're seeing them in reach not just for Americans, not just for people in the West, but people who are coming from these still very, very difficult spots in the world. You know, Junior talks about the battle with alcohol and Subi brings up uh, sort of depression and anxiety. And there's a huge conversation about mental health right now. Um, and especially uh, mental health around uh, queer youth. Um, and although that, that's not a huge aspect of the film, what were some things you learned about that, uh, the, that part of the battle that a lot of LGBT people are facing? You know, it's actually one of the most critical issues. And when we started filming in 2014, I think folks in the Bay Area were just trying to cobble together just a modicum of infrastructure to deal with things like housing and, you know, getting like job, like, development training that sort of thing but in fact trauma is one of the biggest pieces of this story you know the the ptsd is so intense as amy weiss from jewish family and community services says like lgbtq refugees 99 percent of them have experienced trauma if not torture so if we don't offer services for people to be able to process and metabolize the trauma that they've gone through at the same time as they're going through these huge new chapters of their lives, we're really kicking ourselves, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, and one of the things we wanna do with the film is, you know, you saw in the film these guardian groups, many of them are from religious communities, the Unitarians, Jewish family, their values sort of dictate that they, you know, do whatever they can to help. Folks are now talking about, could we put together a guardian group of therapists or psychology students who are doing their intern hours that could create a kind of pro bono network um, that once these folks arrive, they could immediately start to connect. Now there are complicated issues around that. Some of the folks that come over, they didn't want therapy. Culturally, it was just anathema to them to like see a therapist. It was perhaps a sign of weakness in, in where they grew up. So it's not a just simple issue of provide therapy and it's all gonna be great. I think it's a very nuanced issue, but honestly, I think it's actually one of the most important issues. You know, a, a lot of commentators have, have long made reference to the similarities between the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement. And I think with everything we're seeing now with, with BLM and, and all that, how do you think that will help un us understand or, or maybe in enhance the rights of LGBTQ people going forward, especially in light of the, the recent um, Supreme Court decision that we saw? Yeah, I think we're at a sort of unprecedented reckoning moment around Black Lives Matter, even in my, where I am this summer in Colorado Springs, which has um, historically been more conservative. The, the Black Lives Matter movement is alive and well, even in places like this. And so I feel like there's also an opportunity not to sort of treat these movements in silos. They often have been very siloed in the past, but you know, three of the four folks in our film are black and they're refugee and on top of that they're queer. So I hope that there's an opportunity when these moments happen where the public's attention is captured in such a big way is that we can also drill a little more deeply into the nuances of, of some of these multiple identities. And I would 
absolutely include queer in that as well. So yeah, that's a that's a great question. And I'm I'm quite curious what what's in store in the next six months politically. I mean, there is a new awakening that I feel happening around me right now, around many of these issues. So we'll see. Why do you think intersectionality isn't talk you know, isn't focused on that much? Because even if you look at Pride Parades, I don't know what it's like for you, but here in Canada, even in Toronto and Vancouver, it's still 90% white, I would say. Yeah, I, well, this is a, you're asking a very uh, big question, and I think it would, we could do a whole interview kind of <laughs> unpacking this. I, I, I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I remember in the days where um, LGBT uh, contingent of Congress was trying to get a non-discrimination bill through. This is what we just heard the Supreme Court finally rule on this last year. And to make it palatable to Congress, they had to exclude trans people at that time. I mean, really, like for years, trans people were constantly thrown under the bus by the uh, supposed LGBT community. And so I don't think it's an accident. I think it's historically it's political expedience that will make groups think, okay, well, at least we're not as bad off as that group, so we're gonna dissociate ourselves. And I think you find that um, the folks in our film are living and embodying all these multiple identities. They're walking around understanding what it's like to be black in America. They're walking around understanding what it's like to be a new immigrant, and on top of that, a refugee. Refugees are very different than other immigrants in terms of why they, they've had to flee. And then on top of that, they're integrating queer identities. So to me, it's a huge opportunity and exciting, but for the average American historically, it's like, I think, you know, people just sort of shut down and they, they, they want to just, you know, there's a sort of self-interest thing there too, so. You, you mentioned how the majority of refugees get settled either in the US, Canada, or the UK. And we know that the president has decreased it by 80%. At the end of the film, we see Subi's sister, uh, get resettled, I, I think it's in uh, Vancouver. Um, do you think now, especially with Trudeau, our Prime Minister, saying he wants to increase the intake, do you think we're going to see a lot of people who originally were going to go to the U.S. maybe go to Canada now? That's already happened. I mean, as, as the refugee, uh, the influx of refugees in the U.S. has dropped to a trickle, most folks, like Subi's sister now, are opting for Canada. Plus... Canada has a much stronger infrastructure of support services for refugees who first arrive for the, for the newcomers. And also they have a thing called private sponsorship. So Subi was able to connect with a group of Canadians living in Vancouver who networked together, raised a certain amount of money and have a special relationship with the United Nations that says, look, we can support this person for their first year of resettlement. We don't have that in the US. So Canada right now is a leap ahead of the US. And um, my hope is that, that the US can actually learn from some of the models. Now, I will say I just learned from former Ambassador Samantha Power earlier this week that Biden has come out uh, saying that he wants to increase the allowable refugees to around 125,000 in the first year of his presidency. And that gives me lots of hope that the directions that we were going around refugees and immigration in, in the final years of the Obama administration will not only be restored, but actually maybe enhanced. You know, you mentioned Biden and it's, it's good that he's a nominee, but you know, even I talk to, when I talk to young queer people, they're, 
they, they waffle a little bit on Biden just because of his of his previous record. But going forward, how much, you know, overall support for for LGBTQ people and refugees, how much of it do you think is truly a generational thing? Like in 20, 25 years with, you know, more young people coming out and, and more young people showing their support that it it that there's hope for the future. I mean, I think you saw in the Democratic primary an expression of what you're talking about, Dan, which is that young people were able to get behind any number of candidates, candidates of color, younger candidates, uh, an openly gay candidate who actually was viable into the final days of the primary. Of course, I mean, I mean Pete Buttigieg. And so um, I myself was uh, an Elizabeth Warren supporter and, um, and still am, but I guess what I'm encouraged by is that I am seeing a coalition of people coming together, people who supported Bernie Sanders, younger people who might have uh, supported Pete Buttigieg, you know, um, based on some of those generational questions, and other candidates are understanding the importance of building a coalition uh, in, the coming, in the coming decade. And I, um, I'm excited by the future. I mean, I guess I'm an optimist by nature. But uh, as I said before, if you look at those surveys, the Pew Foundation does great surveys on, on values and attitudes and people under, the thir under 35, where they are gives me um, hope for a pretty, pretty good country in the future. I may not be, uh, I may be, you know, kind of old and in my final days, but I, I, oh, so sorry, Dan. Nope. Other phone is going off there. Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, well, we, we, we can uh, wrap it up soon here. Um, just a couple more questions. I, when, I think there's a scene towards the end where, where Mike's talking with, I think it was Mike or somebody, talking with uh, Junior um, about his, his issues. And he talks about this idea of needing to be rescued. Um, can you expand on this a little bit? Why do you think a, a lot of young people, whether they're LGBTQ or not, have this feeling of being being lost and, and feel like they, they need to be sort of taken in by somebody in a way. This is a this is a sort of heartbreaking piece of this whole story. And it's it's really what makes LGBTQ asylum seekers and refugees quite unique. You know, most refugee resettlement in this country is really based on families. You know, a family will flee a war-torn region of the world and they'll come to the U.S. and through these agencies, they'll be connected into community and to other families. You know, maybe it's, if, if you're an Iraqi family, maybe it's a mosque or community center, or grocery stores. It's not easy, but there are these ways. There's already the diaspora that exists with other Iraqis and Iraqi Americans. LGBT refugees are often not fleeing with their families, they're fleeing from their families. That very essential space, as Subi in the film says, like your family is your safe space. That's where you go. And if that has ruptured initially, um, I understand Junior's sentiments when he talks about that need to fill that ruptured part of ourselves. And then on top of it, to come to a new place and not be embraced right away by community or other in the case of Junior, other Congolese folks. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a gay Congolese person and you get here, might possibly not want to see any other Congolese people because you're afraid you're going right. to experience the same persecution that you did back home and hatred and stuff. So, it's um, it is it's a rough 
it's a rough journey for folks. And so I think I'm hoping that out of the film, people might ask the question, like, what can I do? Like, who's going to step forward and actually help these folks? I understand it better now from the psychological perspective, from the resource perspective. What can I do to maybe help these newcomers when they arrive? What do you think are some of the, the biggest challenges as a society we face going forward, um, either when in dealing with refugees or asylums or LGBTQ rights? I mean, I think the, the, the challenges ongoing are, are being able to, from my vantage point, I'm a documentary filmmaker. So for me, what matters is being able to use this kind of storytelling to kind of humanize the lived experiences of people to ultimately open hearts and then open minds. So my hope is that people will watch our film on PBS on Sunday and online the first two weeks of July. And maybe they'll be more likely to like read an article in the Guardian or the New York Times about refugees, or that maybe they'll think, huh, I could volunteer at my local refugee resettlement organization, Jewish Family or IRC or one of these great groups. And, and maybe for me, it's just volunteering to like connect with one of these refugees, drive them to the store, drive them to the DMV. Uh, my hope is that there is a bit of a call to action, that it's not just, oh, I feel these things more deeply because I've seen this film or I've seen these stories, but actually that it might catalyze some, you know, some impact, some actual action. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple organizations, and I just want to give a shout out to one, uh, Capital Rainbow Refuge, um, which is one here in Canada, but they might have a have a couple of um, um, places in the States as well. This, my aunt works out of one in Ottawa called Rainbow New Beginnings, which is uh, does, does a lot of what we see specifically with LGBTQ refugees, um, but they're part of a group called Capital Rainbow Refuge. So I just wanted to get that get that out on air as well, especially when, you know, for seeing more and more people coming in, coming into Canada, I think that's going to be a, a great resource for people to have. While we're speaking of rainbows, there's another great one based in uh, Toronto, which is Rainbow Railroad. Yes. And, that, and so p be sure to let your viewers and listeners know about that great organization too. Yes. Now, anything, anything to do with rainbows is, is probably going to be mo mostly, uh, uh, you know, probably, probably a good organization. Uh, well, the film is Unsettled, uh, and it premieres on uh, PBS, is it Sunday? Sunday night. Yes. Uh, and then after that, you said it's streaming for, for two weeks. Where can people stream the film? Worldchannel.org, all one word. Worldchannel.org. You can also get to World Channel by way of PBS.org. Okay, perfect. Well, the film is Unsettled. It's a great film. Um, it really shines a light on LGBTQ people, the refugee system, and the political system in America. Uh, Tom Shepard, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you for such a thoughtful interview, Dan. Take good care. All right, you too. Ciao. Bye. And once again, that was my conversation with documentary filmmaker Tom Shepard. His film, Unsettled, Seeking Refuge in America premieres tonight, June 28th, on World Channel's Doc World series. And you can stream it via World Channel and PBS.org from now until July the 12th. Stay tuned for my shows next week. I'll be speaking with Daytime Emmy Award nominee actor, writer, and director Mike Mayhall about his series, 
Bronx SIU. I'll also be speaking with another great documentary filmmaker, uh, Don Porter, whose new film is Good Trouble, uh, which chronicles the life of congressman and longtime civil rights activist John Lewis. Upcoming shows also include actress and writer Precious Chong, director Jared Cohn, and philosopher and post-humanist Francesca Ferrando. That's coming up in the shows to come on Endeavors. That's it for me today. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye. For now. I always like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>